The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. This is everybody tonight. Looks like some of you remember to wear your name tags. We have small groups tonight, so especially on those weeks when we have small groups, it's good to have a name tag on. And uh, we're a little smaller tonight. Some of our colleagues are uh, hopefully on the TCVC retreat. Other people are playing hooky or have obligations. And isn't it nice, uh, I don't know how it was for you, but I enjoyed that sit. And isn't it nice that these seemingly formal and often obscure suttas actually do a pretty good job at providing meditation instructions? Because that's all we did tonight, or I did tonight, uh, guiding us. I just went through that section of the Satipatthana Sutta that's on mindfulness of the mind. Because the first part is basically the Buddha saying it's really good to be awake to the three wholesome and unwholesome roots of the mind. That's a pretty gross level to be observing the mind. Greed there or not? Aversion there or not? Delusion there or not? Right? And we're just studying the mind. Like, So let's say there is some irritation or aversion. Just see it in and of itself not in terms of a story that I'm a bad person because I have aversion in my mind. It's just aversion being known. Studied in terms of cause and effect or arising and passing, like is that aversion a cause for letting go? Like if we see it with wisdom, it's a cause for letting go. If we see the aversion without wisdom, we're likely to be sucked into some little drama and the body and mind will get tight i.e. dukkha, suffering. So we're just seeing like what's getting set in motion, release or suffering, release or stress. And then the energy level, constricted mind, scattered mind, sleepy mind, restless mind, right? So just looking at the energy level and then just looking at the development or the lack of development of samadhi. Mind still being pushed around or mind sometimes called access concentration, where the hindrances are retreated. They're not actively pushing the mind around, disturbing, fragmenting the mind. You know, is the mind surpassed, surpassable or not surpassable? Like, are these jhanic factors developed so that there's some real stability? That feeling we get when the mind is what we call, like we have a good set, you know, just there's a sense of imper- imperturbability of the mind, that solidity of mind. It really feels like it can be a power trip. Like if, you'd, if we misunderstand it, it's like we feel really powerful, but it's not personal. That's the mistake. But th- there's a real feeling of this is a mind. Yeah, this is the mind I've been looking for. Honey, where have you been? <laughs> So that, that's that feeling of being unsurpassable, like as the mind moves in that direction and it feels really gathered, unified, solid, bright. And then to, you know, the stillness, the Buddha suggests, well, concentrated or not concentrated? Is it really 
completely gathered into stillness and then liberated or not. So just any greed present in the mind or is it seemingly liberated from greed right now, temporarily not affected by craving, not needing things to be other than the way they are. So these are just things to tune into. And I don't know how it was for you, but to work on that sequence is really to learn the map of the mind. And even if your concentration wasn't perfect, probably nobody was in fourth jhana tonight, maybe, but probably not, or at least fully in fourth jhana. But that doesn't mean we can't learn the map while we're doing it and kind of grease the wheels of the mind so it becomes more fluent with the full range of mind experience. Just like we want to become fluent with the body and really learn how to embody the body. So sort of like given that we have taken birth and a body, we should learn how to show up. Well, we also have a mind. We should learn how to show up and really be there in the mind. Any questions about the, or comments about the guided sit tonight before we go on? Anything uh, you'd like to report to the group? Yeah, Brooke. Yeah, here the word constricted, I don't know if that um, is the same. I, I might have used both at different time, but he uh, translates the word for uh, what would normally be like sleepiness or heaviness as constricted and restlessness as scattered. So then, um, but I also use tightness generally as a synonym for dukkha. Right, so or con- I would also use the word contracted as a synonym, synonym, synonym for dukkha. So when the mind's tight, when the mind's contracted, when the mind is struggling, that's suffering, dukkha. And when the mind has an absence of that struggle, right, tightness, then that's the release of the mind. Any other? reports from the sit was it useful to use those that map did that uh, inform did it seem to fit and of course I just kept moving right through the map that doesn't mean it fit sort of the development of your sit the unfolding of your sit yeah Sharon I was just aware of really enjoying it but that it was uh, was a, a very good uh, guide uh, meditation and I'm glad to know where it comes from. Yeah. And I hope one of the things that people are taking away, especially now as we're going to be transitioning to the fourth foundation, and remember the fourth foundation is really learning these maps. And the maps are just uh, the tools to uh, use the lens of suffering and the ending of suffering. So we can 
use the first training, which is mindfulness of body. We did that, I think, in the summer. And there's the mindfulness of feeling we did in the fall. And then the third sort of way to practice mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. And the fourth way that, and we're combining, you know, mindfulness of the mind in this fourth way, generally translated as mindfulness of mental objects, but I like more just to be kind of, because they're really the maps, and specifically they're the maps the Buddha taught so that as you're looking at mind, or even more generally as you're looking at experience, you're really looking at it in terms of causes for suffering, causes for release of suffering. And then the maps, you like to see things in terms of the five aggregates or the six sense gates or the hindrances or the factors of awakening, the wholesome qualities of mind or the noble truths. They're really just those maps all together make this mandala, this sort of matrix of ways or a way of seeing the mind that illuminates the experience of suffering and the release of suffering. It just brings it into focus. When you look at the mind with these maps, suffering and the end of suffering becomes a central theme. So, I forget the... Oh, so I'm hoping that one of the things that people take away from the the training we're doing, because we are transitioning this first training that we did the first six weeks, where we're just looking at the mind, is the importance of getting to know the pleasant qualities of mind. It's essential because the difficult qualities are going to stand out. They're going to get our attention naturally. But we want to be equally astute, interested, fluent in recognizing the wholesome qualities of mind. Calm, ease, stillness, joy, resoluteness. I mean, all these qualities, interests that show up are always there at least in a potential way or in a retreated way. And they just, in recognizing them by learning to be fluent, that's the only way. Like that middle part of the way the Buddha teaches to be mindful, which is understanding that things are coming and going, it's really learning how to mindfully participate in the present moment. I'll just read something from um, Ajahn Tanisaro. He says, and I might have read this earlier in the course, this means actively getting engaged and maximizing skillful mental qualities and minimizing unskillful ones. One thus develops insight into the process of origination and passing away by taking an active and sensitive role in the process, just as you learn about eggs by trying to cook with them, gathering experience from your successes and failures, and attempting increasingly difficult dishes, right? So like when we think of, you know, something that we always assume we're never going to do is like have that great sit where the mind gets one of those beautiful jhanic states that you read about sometimes. Well, you have to learn how to make that egg dish, right? And first, you just, you know, we're just learning like the ingredients, like, well, there is joy, there is ease, there is stillness, There are these qualities of mind. So how do we learn to bring them into view, thereby strengthening them? It's like when we 
recognize the wholesome qualities, even if it's quite faint or not fully developed, but we know enough that it's there, we sense it, we see it, eventually it really comes into view, and it's almost like we're blowing on the ember of that particular quality, seeing it, trusting it, recognizing its wholesomeness is what strengthens it. And there's that basic principle when you see a wholesome quality with a mindful awareness, wisdom awareness, it gets stronger. When you see an unwholesome quality of mind with mindful awareness, wisdom awareness, it gets weaker. That's one way you can tell whether it's a wholesome quality or not. You know, when you see it honestly, without judging it, you're just seeing it with some continuity, it will grow because that's the proximate cause for calm getting stronger, joy getting stronger, is to see it as it is, without judgment, without greed, just to recognize it, which means to be intimate with it, which is exactly, this is one of the few times where the ego and Dharma practice are in alignment. I mean, the ego doesn't necessarily understand this, but ultimately it wants to be intimate with those wholesome, pleasant qualities of mind too. This is why in the tradition, you know, when the Buddha was doing extreme ascetic practices and he remembered, some of you know this story, as a child falling into one of these beautiful states of mind, he asked himself, do I need to be afraid of this kind of pleasure that the ego likes, that I as a personality really like? I would like to have some of that nice feeling. Do I need to be afraid of this? And he contemplated it. And he realized, no, because, like I said, it's the one pleasure you can feel free to give your needy, you know, little girl, little boy in your heart that just wants comfort, right? We have to be careful about a lot of other things, right? Because we get addicted or we get, um, you know, it triggers greed. But because of the way that mental pleasure, mental bliss, those wholesome qualities work is as we recognize them, as we enjoy them, so to speak, or open to them, or intimate with them, to f- more fully enjoy and be intimate, the mind has to become more and more refined. So it will, it will naturally guide the mind in the direction of letting go because the pleasure itself is the pleasure of renunciation. This is the joy of renunciation, that inner bliss. Any of the sort of inner thing, inner joys, bliss, whatever you ever read about in this tradition, it all is under the category of mental seclusion or renunciation. It is the joy of the mind letting go of its obsession with worldly things. So it's retreating, it's secluding itself from you know, the stock market and relationship. It's not saying no to those things forever. It's just putting for an hour or whatever, it's putting it down. So then it has the joy of not being obsessed or not being pushed around by those worldly things. Ben, do you have a comment or a question? So Saida says, every experience, whether good or bad, 
gives you a learning opportunity to notice whether the mind accepts things the way they are or whether it likes, dislikes, reacts, or judges. And this is the central thing for the, the study, mindfulness of mind. It really comes down to getting a sense of what a skillful mind is and what an unskillful mind is. And I know many of you know this discourse because I've read from it many times um, in the Buddhist Studies courses. You can find it. It's the um, Middle Link Discourse, number 19. A lot of the better-known discourses are the Middle Link Discourses, so you can, if you ever want to Google it to get it, MN uh, will get you the Middle Link Discourses because the Pali is uh, um, Majjhima Nikaya, sort of the middle length basket because they used to carry these, they used to be written on leaves and so they have these big baskets. And so um, MN19, and sometimes it's translated the title as two sorts of thinking. And this is that discourse where the Buddha talks about you know, when I was practicing before I was awake, before I had deep insight, it occurred to me, maybe I should, you know, as I'm being awake, being mindful, noticing thought, noticing the mind, categorize anything that's unskillful, put it in one category, and all that mental activity that's skillful in another. And uh, he concludes, yeah, that's good. And he says, whatever a practitioner keeps pursuing with his thinking and pondering, that becomes the inclination of one's awareness. If a practitioner keeps pursuing thinking imbued with sensuality or greed, ill will, cruelty, abandoning thinking imbued with compassion, loving kindness and renunciation, right? Unwholesome and wholesome roots. So one is inclined toward the unwholesome and therefore abandoning the wholesome roots, one's mind is bent by that thinking, imbued with harmfulness, ill will, sensuality, or greed. If a practitioner keeps pursuing thinking imbued with ill will, abandoning non-ill will, and on like that, um, then what one needs, he goes in and he talks about how then you have to be... uh, really vigilant. And he, that's the, where he gives that example of the cow herder during the harv- just before harvest where all the crops are ripe and you're running your 30 cows on a narrow path and you've got to be so vigilant to keep them off of the crops. This, that's the image for because the mind is being governed by the unwholesome roots. So you want to be really vigilant because you know if I take my eyes off of the ill will, my mind will start spinning. If I forget for a moment that greed is there, my mind will shoot off. That delusion is there. So you have to be, the practice has to be very vigilant. So the idea is when the mind is in this place, we want to know because then our practice is going to look very parental. You know, we're going to be that cow herder and we're going to use the stick. Don't go there. You're not allowed to go there. It's not okay for you to go there. My life depends on you not going there. I mean, and just, it's really, the practice is acting out of a, a very real sense of danger. 
I could say something here, I could do something here that would cause a lot of pain and suffering for me and others. And then the other image, when the mind is governed by the wholesome qualities, kindness, compassion, renunciation, the non-stickiness, the non-greediness and aversion of the mind, then it's like, you know, the cows are okay wandering about, pooping, wherever, because the crops have been taken in. And you can, he uses the image, like the cow herder sits under a shade tree and just knows that the cows are there. That's all the work is to being a cow herder. You don't have to sort of negotiate these thin paths from one pasture to the next. You can just let the cows do what they're going to do. So as we move now into the, uh, this fourth foundation, the first training is mindfulness of the hindrances. This is the first map the Buddha recommends that we learn. And the discourse goes like this. And how practitioners does one dwelling, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and how practitioners does one dwell contemplating Dhamma, mental qualities or these maps, in terms of the five hindrances? A practitioner understands there is anger in me. When no anger is present, one understands there is no anger in me. One understands how anger arises and one understands how anger is abandoned. Right? How to feed it, how to strengthen it, how one strengthens the anger, how one, how one weakens the anger. And one understands how there is a non-arising in the future of abandoned anger. So once we've put it down, no longer attached, no longer caught up in the anger, how it stays abandoned, how we prevent it from coming back. And then onward with the other five hindrances. So we do that for greed. We do that for anger. We do that for too much energy, restlessness, too little energy, sleepiness. And we do it for doubt. So this is our task for the next week especially, you know, to memorize the map of the five hindrances. And we've sort of been doing it because we've been focusing the last week or so on the difficult states of mind that arise. The hindrances are just one way to organize all of the difficult states that hinder the stability of mind. And so in particular now, you know, as we understand the hindrances, we want to understand not just that there's anger or greed or sleepiness or dullness, or I mean uh, restlessness or doubt, but um, how it arises like what is the mind doing before the anger, the greed, the dullness, the restlessness, the doubt arises? What's the proximate cause for doubt to arise in the mind? It's lawful, so what comes before? And one understands how it's abandoned. So as you're there, knowing that there's anger or any of the hindrances, can we sustain awareness so that there's a recognition when it's not there, what just happened? How did that happen? How did my mind go from being obsessed or caught in irritation to not? Like, anybody have any moment of irritation today? Right? 
I was on retreat, uh, leading a retreat at Holy Spirit, the Common Ground Retreat. And on my way home, uh, I heard about um, our Chief Ch- our, um, Scalia dying. And uh, I'm not proud to say that uh, there was a little, not that he died, but that the Supreme Court could change some happiness about the possibility of change. And then uh, a little later, I think when I spoke with Wynne, I found out about how um, some people don't think that Obama should be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice. (laughs) And then I noticed real irritation. And it would have been really useful if I were a sincere practitioner to be interested to see, because I'm not feeling irritated now. So at some point there was irritation, irritation, irritation. And then was it just that I got distracted? Right? What was it, or did it? Did I see the futility, or did I understand that sometimes it's like this? Right? Sometimes people are fearful, or ignorant, or greedy, or sometimes I'm just wrong. Right? Like to really see that I don't really, my mind doesn't deserve a fixed view around this, because you know, to be irritated or angry, you've got to have a target. Anger needs a target to be sustained. You have to have somebody you're angry at. You know that story I tell sometimes about the boat, rowing the boat at night and running into another boat and getting angry and you take out your flashlight and you look and you realize that boat's empty. There's nobody to get angry at. You know, you're thinking the guy was an idiot for running into you and then you realize I can't get angry at anybody because that boat was just floating there. So this is sort of interesting. So what was the proximate cause for the anger falling out of the mind, no longer being sticky? So this is our homework for this next week. Can we get really interested in maybe just take your predominant hindrance? So the greedy types can take up greediness, the aversive types can take up aversion, the sleepy ones can take up the dullness when your mind feels unworkable and heavy and lethargic and you just want to eat or sleep or watch TV. Like, What are the causes for that? What are the causes for the abandoning of that? And what way of being keeps it from re-arising? Like how do you, how does the mind, how to maintain a mind that's immune from the re-arising of that hindrance? Like why some days does anger not come up? Or some hours, does anger not come up? What's the mind, what's that quality of mind? That, and that's, you know, that's how doctors work. You know, they, when they're looking for a new vaccine, you know, they'll look at uh, thousands of people maybe who were exposed to something but who didn't get the illness. Jeff, Jeffrey can tell us more, but, Right? And, you, and then you try to isolate, well, what was it about those people that made, us, made them immune to that disease? And you find that one thing. Or you, they have petri dishes, you know, and they're saying, like, where does that thing not grow? And you isolate it. So what kind of mind is naturally immune from anger? Well, maybe a mind that is appreciating the wholesomeness of love and kindness, just abiding in kindness. Maybe that mind has immunity from irritation. 
and we sort of, the mind connects the dots. Oh, I get why sometimes once anger has abandoned, it doesn't re-arise because the mind is established in kindness. Okay, it's good to know. Right? It is good to know. So uh, in two weeks from tonight, we'll have another small group, and it would be nice to report on this. And the same goes for the seven factors of awakening. But again, you could come up with your own list of really beautiful, wholesome causes or qualities of mind that lead to insight, support the arising of insight. So in just to kind of give you a head, heads up, so we have mindfulness, of course, interest or investigation, energy, joy, and then the three tranquilizing, tranquility, um, concentration, and equanimity. And like what supports the arising, what causes them to go away, right? Once they're present, what supports their staying present? Once tranquility is there, once joy is there, what sustains it, what keeps it there? makes it resilient to falling out of the mind. Right? So in the same way we're interested in what makes the mind resilient from the hindrance coming back, but the wholesome qualities, what makes the mind resilient from losing that wholesome quality once it's there? What sustains it? So this is our work for the next couple of weeks. And then just to give you some thoughts about the small groups tonight um, as we finish up our you know, looking at the mind and the development of the mind, really from a mind that's scattered and being pushed around by greed, anger, and delusion to a mind that's really capable of doing the work of insight, what we call samadhi. Samadhi is really the definition or the the word we use to point to the mind that it's not just concentrated in the way that we might think. It's concentrated and ready to do the work of insight. It just, that mind just naturally sees things as they are. So it's not a mind that's indulging in its beauty. It's using its beauty to do, it's like, uh, I think of this, I mentioned this, I think, previously, maybe even in this course about you know, as I've learned in, about dogs and certain breeds and other animals that have been part of human civilization for a long time, this, this kind of working together, that animals, including maybe some humans, you know, were bred, have been bred, they love to work. They want to work. And that, I like that image for the, the mind of samadhi. It's a mind that wants to see the truth of things, wants to deconstruct. So when you have a really concentrated state, but you don't want to be bothered, that's, that's totally okay. And you'll see that when a mind is tired and it knows how to get concentrated, it will really retreat, 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 retreat. But at some point, it will come into this balance of a mind that has that resilience, but it really, it doesn't want to retreat too far. It really wants to do the work of insight. It's happy to look, to engage. And that's the 
Buddha knowing Dhamma. So it's different than just a path of concentration or samatha practice, it's called in the tradition, where we really just want to absorb. And there's a lot of healing, psychological and spiritual healing, that happens in the deeper states of absorption. A lot of learning too. But then it's like taking that stable, clear mind and just noticing what comes and goes. Living our life, really. So we see. I mean, this is, what, this is called the rubbing and scrubbing where our conditioning is provoked. You know, our habit energies are provoked. But now they're provoked in the context of a mind being really stable and interested and not afraid of greed, anger, and delusion. Because greed, anger, and delusion now in this mind, they're not a problem. They're teachers. Like, oh, that's interesting. It came and it went. That doesn't seem very personal. right? To see that the habits of greed, anger, delusion aren't personal. We need to see greed, anger, and delusion to be free of them. Just secluding the mind from greed, anger, and delusion is temporary freedom, but it doesn't uproot the wrong view that I'm greedy, I'm angry. We actually have to see anger, greed, come and go, come and go, come and go to realize it's not self. It's just nature. And that's, that's real immunity. That's how we get real freedom from the defilements or the hindrances is when we actually can observe them. Now, we're observing them a lot of the time, just in general in our practice, but we don't have that beautiful stability. So it seems personal when I get angry or personal when I get greedy. So the ideal is to get enough samadhi that when we see the greed, anger, and delusion, we're not seeing it in terms of self. It's just nature coming and going. We see it's an impermanent nature. We see it's selfless nature. We see any attachment as dukkha. So this would be great to talk about in your small groups today. Um, just how you've seen the unwholesome and wholesome roots, how the stability of the mind, like when you really see, like if you share a time when you really saw greed or saw anger or saw delusion in your mind, it's really useful to share how the stability of mind really helped you see it in a way that you hadn't seen it as clearly before. So you're connecting, you're valuing that I could see it because the mind was stable. And you could even reflect in your small group, I wonder why my mind was so stable at that time. What gave the mind some capacity to see it without being pushed around by it? That greed, that aversion, that delusion. Right? And then the other things is to talk about that the development of samadhi and, and, and just how you've seen it develop, moments when it was developed, and what were the characteristics of that stability of mind, that samadhi of mind. So describing it in your own words or using the Buddha's words, a uh, way of talking about it and lining it up with your own experience. And then how how that how you kind of grew that samadhi, that stability, so it was sort of concentrated, and how you've learned to make it a little bit more concentrated, or how it was sort of concentrated, 
and then you lost it. And, and always when you talk, we're always interested in cause and effect. Like, how? What did I do that made a relatively stable, concentrated mind a little bit more concentrated? Or what did I do to mess it up? So I, I kind of stumbled into a concentrated mind. It just sort of everything came together. And then I did something. I related in some way. Or something happened. And then it fell apart. So this would be useful to talk about in the small groups tonight. So relatively small, so maybe like 18. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.